Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, it's Reed. You normally hear me, but today I brought along Rick Wilson. Rick, tell the good listeners of the Lincoln Project podcast what we need them to do. Join the union.us. The union is a way for folks to be matched to campaigns and causes and candidates around this country to match your specific interests and skills where it can make an enormous difference. Go to jointheunion.us today. We really think it's using the power of matching people's ambitions and their talents with candidates in a way that really makes a difference. Get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Murchia, historian of American political rhetoric and a professor in the Department of Communications at the <coughs> Texas A&M <laughs> University. I'm yes. just teasing. I'm just teasing <laughs> as a longtime longhorn. <laughs> Jen is a contributing editor to Zocalo Public Square, and her writings have also appeared in a wide array of outlets, including The Washington Post, USA Today, and The Conversation. She has also published three books on American political discourse, especially as it relates to citizenship, democracy, and the presidency. Her latest book is Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump, available wherever fine books are sold. Today, she's coming to us from College Station, Texas. And as a Texas Longhorn myself, I admittedly have a hard time saying giggle, <laughs> but we're all about building coalitions here at the Lincoln Project. So Jen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, my students would hiss if the university that you're from were mentioned in class. And the way you even said it was more like Voldemort, right? The, the, <laughs> the school that shall not be shall named. Shall not be named. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, Jen, later this week on Thursday night, we'll see the first public hearing of the House Select Committee on January 6th. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But before we get to that, I want to talk about how the rhetoric of a person like Donald Trump and the other part of the binary star of the American sort of nationalist movement, Tucker Carlson, really helped bring about the stuff we saw just about a year and a half ago. So as I mentioned earlier, you're an expert on all things political, but in particular rhetoric. And I think the words we use, I think as someone who grew up in politics and has worked in politics most of my life, take it for granted. But I know that you've studied closely the words and the meanings of those words that Trump and Tucker Carlson have used. So in your analysis, what are your takeaways from what Donald Trump has unleashed politically with the way he talks on this country? It's information warfare on a day-to-day -day basis. So what Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump are both excellent at doing is weaponizing communication, using words as weapons. You're absolutely right that, you know, of course I'm biased, but communication language that we use, those choices mean everything. You can't have a democracy without democratic communication. And those two excel at using authoritarian or autocratic communication. They don't use communication for democracy. And when you say that, it's often the language of division, the language of us versus them, this idea of this great replacement theory, right? 
those people are coming to take your homes. Those people have moved into your towns. Those people are taking your jobs. And that could be immigrants. That could be people of color. It could even be people you just don't agree with politically. Yeah, absolutely. So they use a two-pronged strategy. One is to use language strategies that connect them to their base. So what I wrote in my book about Trump is the way that he used ad populum appeals, appealing to the wisdom of his crowd, American exceptionalism, and something called paralypsis, which is, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, um, <laughs> to connect. Right. Yeah, he loves that, right? To connect to his followers and, you know, to keep them loyal. So it's very much about loyalty. And then uses other strategies, which are actually war rhetoric strategies for separating him and his good people from everyone else. Those are things like, you already mentioned conspiracy, using threats of force or intimidation, using ad hominem attacks, and using reification, which means treating people as objects. And the combination particularly of those last three strategies has historically around the world been a recipe for warfare. It's how presidents lead nations to wars. It's how cult leaders, <laughs> you know, get people to fight for them. It's always used in the negative. And so you called it the rhetorical genius. And I think that's the right way to put it, because I think we've said something similar here, which is whether you like him or not, Trump has an undeniable charisma that draws in both those who love and adore him and those that loathe him. And so we've talked about just briefly the language he uses to draw in his people. But talk about the effect it has on his opponents. Yeah, a lot of people don't want to admit that Donald Trump is really good at it. I mean, he appears to be an idiot. And if you disagree with him, you're very inclined to see him that way. And he does ramble and it does seem very much ad hoc and disorganized. But if you pay a lot of attention to him, like I did, and chart what he's doing, you'll see that he's consistently doing the same things and that he's not always doing the same thing. So he'll use some strategies that he'll like sort of pull back on the most aggressive things and then use them when he needs them the most. And it's sort of amazing that he has been able to control the national conversation the way that he has since 2015. I mean, if you think about the attention economy that we live in and how everyone is battling for our attention, the fact that this person, this one person has had that attention for this long is frankly astounding. So when I called him a rhetorical genius, it was kind of controversial, but I meant it in the way that a literary theorist named Kenneth Burke used what he called demagogic effectiveness when he talked about Hitler. And he did a, a review of Mein Kampf, and he talked about the way that Hitler was so persuasive in that book. And I'm sure you've read Mein Kampf too. You know, it's a propaganda manual. It's a how-to-do propaganda. It's a textbook for the content for what people should be saying. And then it's also, of course, a persuasive document that's meant to be propaganda. So it works on so many levels. And so Donald Trump has that same kind of demagogic effectiveness. He has been able to control the conversation. It doesn't matter what big event you try to counter-program against Trump. He knows how to say something shocking and divisive, something that plays on media sensibilities. He knows how to organize a network of propagandists to support him. And he has just been, I call him authoritarian P.T. Barnum. <laughs> He's been so great at capturing our attention. Well, and, you know, I've mentioned this before. I don't know the exact date off the top of my head, but we're within probably a few weeks of it being, Jen, seven years since he came down the escalator. Yeah, June 15th. Okay, so any day now, actually. <laughs> and. I remember thinking, what a joke. 
this guy is when I saw him coming down the escalator. Because to your point about P.T. Barnum, right? I mean, he'd been a showman. Everybody knew The Apprentice was staged. All reality television is unreality. He'd been on Oprah. He'd written the books. He was a caricature of a caricature, if such a thing is possible. And then he gets up and he talks about the rapists and the murderers, and he does everything that his niece Mary talked about, which is he came in and did the thing that was so unbelievable, everybody just stood there and gaped. So people like you who are media savvy, who understand how the political game and the political spectacle work, understood that he was a fraud and he was a joke. And folks made that very clear in their reporting about him. But everyday Americans thought that guy was the guy from The Apprentice. They thought that guy did write those books. They were completely fooled by the apparatus of the Trump character. And so you could see it, but everyday Americans couldn't. And they still can't. They still think that guy really is that guy. Well, and it's an interesting thing. And this is where, Jenna, in your research, I'm sure there's a psychological and emotional component to this. But when you know the guy's lying, you know what the truth is, and you don't care. You're willing to stand there with the MAGA hat on and cheer him on anyway. The thing about Trump supporters is that they were so cynical that they're so distrusting of the political process, and they so believed that argument about corruption being everywhere and pervasive that they didn't care that Trump lied. In fact, they loved that he lied because he was so great at lying. He would jam them up and he was, you know, on our side fighting, you know, for us against them. So they wanted a liar. They wanted to have a liar that was as good as the other liars that, you know, had been lying to them all along. All right. So they knew he was lying, but the rationalization, if I'm hearing you correctly, is the other people, those people have been lying to us for years. So what's so bad about him doing it too and getting up in their faces? That's absolutely it. All politics is a lie. And so we want the best liar. And so let's go. And so now let me ask you this. Seven years in, you mentioned the media. I'm going to get back to it in a second. But you saw that, you know, I think it was Les Moonves from CBS who said he may be bad for the country, but he's good for ratings. We saw now Jeff Zucker, now formerly of CNN, would hold a live shot of a, an empty airport tarmac just waiting for Trump to arrive. You see these stories now about the White House press corps, or at least the current members of the White House press corps, sort of lamenting how boring the Biden administration is and how hard it is to get anything out of them because, Jen, they know what they're doing and they know their job. But I think also they probably missed the chaos of it, right? Like you never knew it was going to come next. It was sort of that roller coaster where, you know, you tipped up over the top and you didn't know if you were going to fly off the rails or you're going to survive this time. And so give us a little sense of how there's individual Americans, as you said, who only ever had the connection to the art of the deal, the Oprah interviews, the Larry King interviews, the apprentice. But the media theoretically, A, should be in the business of truth and B, should know better. Yeah. But unfortunately, news values are what they are. And you know, they go with what is the most exciting story, right? Where's the chaos going to be? Where are we likely to get a, you know, exciting nugget that we can replay or that other people will pick up? You know, what's going to drive ratings and clicks? I had the opportunity actually today, I was I'm working on something and I went back and looked at what CNN did on the day that Trump secured the Republican nomination 
compared to what CNN did on the day that Hillary Clinton secured the nomination. Two full hours for Trump. So this is May 4th, I think, 2016. Two full hours nonstop of Trump. And he's just running the table. And then on the day that Hillary Clinton secured the nomination, they had her campaign manager on for about a minute. And then they had a clip of her in the second hour for another maybe minute. And the rest of the whole two hours was devoted to Trump. You know, I guess it goes back to the old uh, local news trope, right? If it bleeds, it leads. Right. And so on that day where they paid attention to Trump and not Hillary Clinton, he was running some scam about how he couldn't get a fair trial in the Trump University case because his judge was of Mexican heritage, he claimed, right, which was a big scandal, which was a cover up for the actual news, which was that Trump was scamming all these poor Americans out of all of their money, you know, intentionally and had been for years. And so instead he distracts and gets attention that way and distracts from what should have been the main plot point of the day, which was that Hillary Clinton had secured the nomination. You know, one thing that we realized, I guess, in 2019, before we even started the Lincoln Project was, you know, Rick Wilson, my co-founder and I, we'd go to all these meetings, as the listeners have heard, all these very earnest Republicans talking about how they were going to get the party back and we were going to make Trump look like a loser. It was going to be about policy and it was going to be about issues and look at what a jerk he is. And we're like, none of this is going to work, right? He doesn't care. He's an asshole. His people love him for it. Calling him that isn't going to make a difference, right? You're just feeding into it. And so what we did, Jen, was very much what you talked about, which was information warfare. This is a guy who wanted to own every second of every day he could. And so we made it our mission in life to get in his face and stay there. And in fact, he just sent out whatever they call him, a truth tweet or whatever he calls it on his new <laughs> scam. A truthy. A truthy. <laughs> He's reiterating a, a list of grievances. And at the end, he uses a nasty word and says, don't let those bleeps on Fox News anymore. And he's talking about us because we run advertising in Palm Beach on Fox because we know he'll see it. And we're still there, right? And he's still ticked off about it. But it seems that whether or not it was the other Republicans in 26, look, it took us a long time, right? I, I thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. I think most of the world did. But what we've seen, and I'm curious about this, Jen, is why is it taking even to this moment, and let's add Trump and Carlson to the mix, and to your point, the legions of propagandists that have now popped up in his wake. Why is it so hard for the media, the political elite, and individual Americans to understand what's going on? Because again, it's one thing, you know, fool some people some of the time, can't fool all the people all the time. So some people like what he does, right? So there's that. Some people are afraid of him and his supporters. He has certainly used fascist strategies that make it seem like you owe Trump your loyalty, right? He's fighting for you. He's a victim of all of these people who are out to get him, these Democrats, these investigations, right? Like this whole global conspiracy, all of that is out to get you the average Trump supporter. But Trump is the only one who stands in the way. And so you owe him your loyalty because he's working for you. You have to defend him so he can defend you. He's the powerful version of you, like your representative in the world. And that's very enticing. So you're going to forgive a lot of things that you maybe would roll your eyes at or you know, feel uncomfortable about. 
because he's the only guy you got. You don't feel represented by anyone else. You don't trust anyone else. And you trust him. And so if Trump was the originator of MAGA, if he had a treasure chest called MAGA and he opened it, Tucker Carlson is the end result or the downstream effect of that, which is he is now willing to say anything and everything that Trump started, but now Carlson takes it to it's not maybe its furthest extreme, but in the history of the United States, further down the road than anybody has gone before. And he seems to do the same thing, which is say the thing that no one else will say. I'm not saying, but I'm saying I heard people are saying the straw man thing. And then also, you know, the snowflake effect, which is both of them, they are the snowflakiest of the snowflakes. They have very little ability to withstand a punch if you actually land one, which is why you can see the worse they hate it, the more that they get spun up. So talk to us a little bit about where you see Carlson in the sort of pantheon of awfulness. <laughs> I like that pantheon of awfulness. Yeah. So Carlson is the central node of the right wing, the far right wing ecosystem. His function is to centralize the discourse and to mainstream extreme right wing talking points. So propaganda analysts call that narrative laundering, taking dirty narratives and repurposing them, making them clean for different audiences, people who wouldn't necessarily be on Telegram or wouldn't necessarily be on Nazi or white supremacist websites or Infowars will watch Tucker Carlson. Right now, Tucker Carlson is the most trusted either person or network in the conservative ecosystem. Pew did some research on this a couple of months ago, and Tucker Carlson was the only entity that Republicans trusted. I think it was like 60 percent. Nobody else even had 50% of the trust, including Fox News. So he's very well trusted and he provides this function for all of this extreme right wing content. You know, and we talk a lot, you know, people like me and you probably talk a lot about like normalization or moving the Overton window or whatever. And for folks who don't know what that means, it means that there are people who are using their talking points, their propaganda every day to try to take things that were once formerly unthinkable or abhorrent and make them seem more like common sense. So if six years ago, maybe longer, you know, you would have heard on Fox News or you would have heard a major political party candidate say, you know, we shouldn't give baby formula to immigrant kids. Like that would be shocking. That would be so abhorrent to withhold baby formula from a small child, defenseless and innocent, that it would be really the realm of the unthinkable. But the way that our political discourse has normalized anti-immigrant sediment, it becomes something that almost seems like common sense. Like, oh, well, yeah, why wouldn't you? And then radicalization is where things that once seemed impossible, abhorrent, become things that you want to do you feel like you have to do yourself. And then the people who are now watching at home think, well, yeah, that made sense. Like that's common sense to me, right? Because the discourse has normalized that kind of behavior so that what was once unthinkable becomes something that seems like, you know, is acceptable. Tucker Carlson is that guy. He normalizes this radical right-wing discourse. So as I mentioned at the top this week, the January 6th committee will have its latest round of hearings. Uh, the first one will be primetime, 8 p.m. Eastern. 
And you can already see, in fact, over the weekend, Axios reported about the Trump Fox propagandist machines all getting in line. They're calling it counter programming. And because I assume that they're afraid how bad this could be for them, but also they can never let an attack go unchallenged. But before we even get to January 6th, you know, you talk about the language of incitement. The people like Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson open the doors for things like January 6th. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they open the doors, they invite the people, they tell them, you know, come to D.C., it's going to be wild. Well, and then you saw in this January on the year anniversary when Ted Cruz from Texas called January 6th the riot, he crossed a major line with Carlson. Carlson lambasts him on his show that night, has Cruz on the next night, and there's Ted Cruz. It's amazing he can stand upright because he has no backbone. And there he is as a supplicant to Carlson, apologizing, use the wrong words, and Carlson's not letting him off the hook. Senator, you're a lawyer. You know what words mean, right? And just pounding him. And I say this, Jen, hopefully Ted Cruz is never president of the United States, but even if he, was, he wanted to be, his chances very well might have ended in that moment because Tucker might have very well decided, you're unworthy, you're not one who is ever going to get my blessing, whatever that's worth. Yeah, I mean, that's the loyalty thing, right? So Trump did the same thing with Fox News, right, as a division after the first primary debate in 2016, after Megyn Kelly asked him, you know, unfair questions. You know, they had this whole war for lasted a month or so, and Trump mastered them. And so then now you see Tucker Carlson doing the same thing to Ted Cruz. It was embarrassing and awkward <laughs> to watch. I mean, that's the thing. That's the loyalty thing that is so key to the Republican Party. They're very much about even taking a leading figure of the party, well-trusted, you know, member of the party and saying you have to do what you're supposed to do. And if you remember, Ted Cruz was the one at the 2016 RNC who said vote your conscience <laughs> and refused to endorse Trump. And so now we're here at January 6th. What kind of rhetoric do you expect to see out of Trump and the Republicans? You know, you can already see it starting. But as we approach Thursday and, and stuff starts to come out, what do you expect to see? Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of what we've already seen, right? So minimizing what January 6th was, attacking the committee for political persecution, as they call it. So that's the whole Patriot Purge line of thinking, saying that the committee itself is illegitimate and illegal and has no power. And that, of course, they're just obsessed with Trump and that they're just doing this for you know, political gains and cynically as a distraction from, you know, all of the bad things about the Biden presidency. And how effective do you think that'll be? It will be very effective with the Trump base. How effective do you think it would be with folks that aren't of the Trump base? I feel as though this is not going to be an opportunity for persuasion. I don't think that people are open to changing their minds on this issue. And so, you know, this is going to be a confirmation bias, motivated reasoning response. I don't know if people are open to changing their minds. It seems like it's going to be difficult. I would agree with you, but let me ask you this then. Why the incredible operation that's already running by the Trump and Republican people? Information warfare. You have to fill the space. Yeah, you can't let there be a vacuum. You can't let the January 6th committee dominate the information space. So you're going to attack. You're going to coordinate a response. You're going to have your talking points 
out there to fill time and air and to give your partisans things to talk about. It's all about seeding the public and the public sphere with talking points and using that to control the discourse. And that's essentially what our politics is today. One last thing before we go. So I, I want to get back to Trump and Carlson because they're very much of a type, but you never see them together. Trump's never on his show. Carlson doesn't refer to Donald Trump that often. Carlson is sort of seen as untouchable at Fox. Trump is still perfectly willing to take swipes at Fox when he thinks it's necessary, when he thinks it fits his purpose. So can these two people in a movement like this continue along a parallel path? Because Carlson is one of those people where he wields enormous political authority despite holding no political office. Now, Trump doesn't hold political office either, but he did. So give me a sense of where you think these two end up. It does seem like if you're an autocrat, you kind of don't want to share the stage. You want them to show their loyalty to you, but not necessarily be your equal. And perhaps Trump and Tucker are equals in a way that they can't mind each other. I mean, Trump certainly likes other autocrats, right? He's very willing to share the stage with Putin, for example. But yeah, not Tucker Carlson. I don't know. I don't know if there's some backstory there. You know, and there might be something with Trump being loyal to maybe him and Hannity have a exclusive deal or something. <laughs> he only wants to go on that show. So, Jen, what can individuals do? These conversations can be scary. They can be interesting. They can be fascinating, but they can also be intangible. What can folks do out there? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that people can do, and I know that this is hard, <laughs> is to be open minded and befriend Republicans. Because all of this autocratic communication, the distrust, the polarization, the frustration, the distrust of government, distrust of community, like all of that is a part of the spectacle of the media. And it's the one-on-one -on -one relationships that can save us, right? To build trust among people one at a time. Because all of these anti-democratic strategies that they use can only work if we're isolated and if we're distrustful and if we're cynical. And it's hard to stay hopeful when things seem as dire as they do. And when it seems like the Republican Party is a unified mass of bad policy and <laughs> bad opinion. <laughs> but if you get to know people on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you'll find that it's not the case. They are not a unified blob of bad right, that they might agree with some of the things and disagree with other things, and they might really surprise you. I was very interested to see some research that was done last week about various things related to feminism and support of trans rights and things like that. And it was older Republican men on the Republican Party, so 50 and older, who were the most supportive of feminism and of trans rights. And that's not a story that you hear in the news, and that's not something you would suspect. And I have examples of, again, you know, people I know who are older Republican men who are very accepting of feminism and of trans rights. And that might not be your issue, but that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. It seems like there's this monolithic opinion on the right, and there isn't necessarily, but that's the way it's presented. Because when it's presented that way, they seem more powerful. So get to know actual people who have different political opinions than you do or who you think have different political opinions than you because you might find out that you have more in common than you think. Well, on that note, Jen, that very hopeful note, which we always love to have, even rarely here at The Lincoln Project, where can our listeners find you on social media? 
I'm mainly on Twitter. Jen Murchia is my Twitter. I'm very bad at Instagram and befuddled by TikTok. So. Yeah, <laughs> the befuddlement is widespread. <laughs> and always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Jen, I want to thank you for joining me. And everybody, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.